We are now in Acts chapter 4. And just as a reminder, the book of Acts in Scripture, it's a pretty big deal. If you don't remember, as we've been looking over these last number of weeks, what Acts is, Acts is the book, it is the original eyewitness, the original source document for what actually happened in the earliest days of the church and describing how it began. So that's fairly important. That's a pretty big deal. And so far, things have been going along pretty well. In fact, there's been a lot of exciting times for the church as it is literally being birthed. And just like for a human being, you celebrate each one of those firsts, whether it's a first step or a first word. We've been having the same thing for the church as we've been looking over these last number of weeks. We have celebrated the first church worship service in which 3,000 people came into the kingdom of God. That was pretty exciting and a pretty big deal. We have celebrated the giving of the first and the second sermons given by Peter. We have celebrated the first healing that occurred here in Acts. Not to mention that while all of this was going on, there was an explosive level of growth that was happening. All in all, it's been good stuff. It's been fun stuff. It's been exciting stuff. And now we get here to Acts chapter 4 this morning, and here things start to change just a little bit, at least in the sense of getting a little bit more real. Today, some of the honeymoon period is over, as it were. It's sort of like realizing that your wonderful, perfect, amazing, does-no-wrong spouse snores a lot and loudly. It's kind of like realizing that person was serious when they said they were not a morning person or that they really did not like to do laundry. The getting real is actually a good thing, but it's not always an easy thing. So we come here to Acts this morning, and amazing things are continuing to happen in the book of Acts. But now, for the first time, we encounter something different. We encounter hardship through the first persecution. Let me say that one more time. Today, we encounter for the first time persecution among God's people or against God's people in the book of Acts. I think this is one of the toughest subjects for us as Christians to tackle because often we don't even talk about it at all. And if we do talk about it, we just kind of touch on it. But today it's presented to us head on in the book of Acts. We cannot ignore it even if we wanted to. And when it comes to this issue of persecution, at least for me, as I think about it, as I wrestle with it, I have one big question around it. And my one big question around it is simply, why? Why is there persecution in the world for seeking to share the gracious, grace-filled, he died for us, will do anything Savior that we find in Jesus Christ? In my mind, I'm like, what's so bad about that? What is so offensive that people would have to be persecuted for trying to share this abundant love in our world? What is it about the nature of the gospel that would bring active hardship against it? And then how do we as followers of the gospel, followers of Jesus, how do we respond to those who do not embrace the gospel and in fact might push against it? And as we look this morning, Acts chapter 4 has a lot to share with us about these very questions. Now, first of all, we shouldn't even be too surprised that persecution will come against followers of Christ. You might remember Jesus himself earlier in the Gospel of John, he's already given us a heads up about this. He's already said, hey, just so you know, this is going to be coming your way. John 15 verses 18 to 20 say this, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will persecute you also. That's exactly what we see starting to happen here in the book of Acts this morning. And Acts is making it clear that there is direct, active opposition to the sharing of the truth of Christ. In fact, we might say it this way this morning, that while the nature of unbelief can be passive in nature, the nature of persecution is always active in its nature. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to persecution, this passage shows us it's not just a lack of belief that's going on. Rather, it's the active presence or pushing against the gospel. This is not a neutral thing. Unbelief would be just sort of the absence of the gospel, not paying a lot of attention to it. But the persecution is an act of resistance against it. In other words, when we look here in the book of Acts this morning, the people are not just ignoring Peter and John. They come, they share about the resurrection of Christ and witnesses to that like they've been sharing throughout all the book of Acts. If they were just there in a passive role, what they would have done is when that message was presented to them, Peter and John, they would have just stared at them with blank stares. I mean, it might have washed over them. They may not have gotten it, but it would have just, they just would have stared. But that's not what happens here this morning. They're not just simply ignoring Peter and John as they're sharing. It's not just an abstract unbelief that's at play. There is an active pushback against Peter and John as they share the gospel. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up with me. We're going to look, first of all, in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. And here's what it says yet again. It says, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, keep in mind, this is the exact same message we've heard from the very beginning of Acts. It has not changed. They're preaching about the resurrection. They're saying Jesus is alive again. They're saying we are witnesses to this. It's the same thing that we've heard, except in Acts chapter 2, when this message was preached, 3,000 people responded by coming into the kingdom of God. Now, here they are in Acts chapter 4, same message is being presented, but look what the response is in Acts 4, 3. It says, upon sharing this message, it says, they received Peter, or excuse me, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So look what's going on here. It's not a neutral unbelief, but rather a spirit of deep hostility and persecution against the truth of Jesus. Again, for me, I'm like, why? What are they doing? They healed a man and shared that they did it in the name of Jesus. What's so bad about that? Why this active aggression against Christianity? What's so harmful about it? I even just had one of you in a separate conversation a couple weeks ago. You literally said to me, why is it in our world, especially among some secular groups, that they don't just ignore the gospel, but they seek to actively pursue legislation to have it banned from as many people as possible? What's going on there? We're going to look at why there's an active pushing back against Christianity. <clears throat> and the book of Acts gives us two reasons why. The first one is this, that Christians tap into a power source greater than the powers of this world. <clears throat> and the second reason is the transformation of lives in Christ results in a change in the status quo. We're going to unpack those one at a time. <clears throat> first of all, Acts shows us that Christians are going to tap into a power source greater than their own and greater than the power in this world. The reason that this is a big deal is that at its root, this is a lordship issue. The main reason that Christians experience persecution is because the power of Christ overrides any other powers found in this world. And frankly, the powers and the principalities in this world, they don't like it. <clears throat> if you want to know more about those powers and principalities, look in Ephesians chapter 6. And there's a description there of those powers. It angers them when there is a power greater than themselves. 
What Acts shows us here this morning is what that power is, that it's greater than any power that we find in this world. And what that power is, is the Holy Spirit. So look with me in chapter 4, verses 7 and after. There's a description of the kind of power we're talking about. It says, they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And they said, by what power? What name are you doing this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and now we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." Can you feel some of the intonation that's going on there as I'm sharing that? The rulers and the authorities, they are feeling threatened. They recognize this is not just another worldly teaching coming their way. There is some other worldly power entering the picture. They even say as much. Look what it says in verse 7. They ask, by what power, what name are you doing these things? Where are you getting your power? You can almost hear the fear in their voice. Hey, wait a minute, this is not a power that we are used to. What if it's stronger than our power? And whenever that happens, when there's something stronger than us or stronger than whatever's at our core, it strikes within us a note of fear. And the people here, the religious leaders, they're starting to suddenly realize there is something greater out there than our control and our power. And it's starting to strike a chord of fear in them. And what Acts is showing us here this morning in a very explicit manner is the power source that is greater than the power found in this world. When Peter and John are directly questioned about what power is doing this, how they were able to bring healing to this man to let him walk, Peter says incredibly explicitly, He doesn't hide anything. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. What's the power? He says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man now stands before you healed. And who is this Jesus? Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. (coughs) He is the salvation in which no one, excuse me, Thanks. He is the salvation found. Salvation is found in no one else but him. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I want us to hear that this morning. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit testifying to the Savior of Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has raised from the dead. This is the ultimate power in the universe, says Peter. The ultimate power. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here this morning. Christians are those who not only know and experience this power, but they are absolutely certain to the center of their being of this power in their life. Christians are people who are so sure of this love and this power and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. They're so positive of it, they stake their very life upon it. They know that they know that they know that there is no greater power than the Holy Spirit power found in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as found in God's love. And here's why this is significant. 
when Christians, when people of God know this power, when they know that they know that they know that there is no power greater in the universe than the power that is within them through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, there's absolutely nothing left in this world that will intimidate them. Absolutely nothing. You know what that means? It means nothing's going to scare them anymore. It means they can't be manipulated. It means they can't be coerced. It means they can't be bought out. In short, it means they can't be controlled anymore. It means they're absolutely, utterly free. When you have the power of the universe and you are familiar with that within you, you can look even death in the face and not blink. And that scares the powers of this world. Why? Because they can't control Christians anymore. No amount of threatening, no amount of punishment, no amount of economic bribery, no amount of recognition, no amount of success, nothing can control them. Not even death can control them. And how do we know that? Look in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were just unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let me translate that for us here this morning. Basically, what they're saying is here, when they, the religious leaders and authorities, saw the courage of these ordinary, unschooled, nothing special about them men, like Peter, they they didn't even blink in the face of their threats. When they realized threats were no longer going to control them, the religious leaders gulped. They said, holy mackerel, holy Toledo, Why? Because they realized these men had been with Jesus and nothing was going to be stronger than that by which to control them. Their power no longer held any power in the face of the power of Jesus. I love how Tim Keller summarizes this concept. He says, here's what makes people hate Christians. Christians are sure. That is to say, in the face of death, persecution, threats, or any form of coercion, Christians are those who are sure, they are certain that this God of love, this God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is greater still. They're absolutely sure of it through and through to the center of their being, so much so they can even stare death in the face and not blink. No amount of persecution, no amount of power, no amount of fear, no amount of debt, no amount of uncertainty can compete with the loving power that is found in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, moment by moment by moment, reminds God's people of this. So again, they can stare anything in the face and have courage to face it and not back down. And the religious authorities began to recognize this in Peter and it scared them. Christians are those who are sure of the love of Jesus, and therefore they can stare down anything that would seek to come against them, against the love of Christ. I wonder, how sure are we? Even right now in these moments, what keeps us from being sure? I love any story pretty much associated with Mother Teresa. Many of you, some of you might remember back in 1982 in the country of Lebanon, There was a tremendous civil war going on, and in the midst of that war, there was a war zone, and Mother Teresa decided that she wanted to go to that war zone because in the middle of it was an orphanage, and she wanted to see the kids from that orphanage saved from the bombardments of the bombs around them. There were disabled and ill children in the orphanage, but they had been abandoned by the staff because the intense fighting and the bombing around the orphanage was so bad, and they were convinced that the bombings were going to blow up or destroy the orphanage. So they took off, leaving the children behind. But as you can imagine, in the middle of a war zone, it was an incredible risk to go in and try to get these children. 
In fact, there was a conversation that Mother Teresa had with a priest and another gentleman, and the priest warned her. He said, Mother Teresa, it's a good idea to go get those children, but you must understand the circumstances, Mother Teresa. Two weeks ago, a priest was killed here. It is chaos out there. The risk is too great. To which Mother Teresa responded, but Father, it's not just an idea. I believe it's our duty. We must go and take the children one by one. Risking our lives is in the order of things. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. You see, I've always seen things in this light. A long time ago, when I picked up the first person from a street in Calcutta, if I had not done it that first time, I would not have picked up 42,000 after that. One at a time, I think. To which the second man responded, but do you hear the bombs? Mother Teresa responded, yes, I hear them. She heard the bombs, but if you were to finish the rest of that story, she still went. Not even bombs or war or death could scare her. Why? Because she was sure of the love of Christ, the power of Christ within her. And so through faith and prayer, she went to that war zone area, and we would call it miraculously, a temporary ceasefire occurred by which she could go and get all of those disabled and ill children and deliver them to safety. Death, war, bombs, none of it scared Mother Teresa. Why? Because she knew a power greater than them all. A power that gave her courage to stare death in the face and not even blink. Do you see why the religious leaders with Peter and John, do you see why they're suddenly on edge? A new power was being tapped into. Holy Spirit power, greater than anything the world had ever known. And they realized we can't control these people anymore. They won't worship us or our authority or our power or our control. Houston, we have a problem. That is why these first Christians, that's why Peter and John are persecuted. They threatened the religious establishment of the day. And frankly, the religious leaders of the day, they were wise to see this coming because it was Christian power that would eventually topple the Roman Empire. Notice that all of these centuries later, we are here this morning talking about Christian love and Christian power long after the military might of the Roman Empire has faded many centuries ago. This is why these Christians were persecuted. They tapped into this power that's greater than any other on earth. And these religious authorities could see that and sense that, and it scared them. So they tried to control them by persecuting these Christians. Except those Christians wouldn't be scared. They didn't blink in the face even of death. That is one reason for the persecution. A second reason is this. The transformation of lives in Christ always results in a change in the status quo. So if you look with me again, chapter 4, verse 13, here's what we hear. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is not just another new teaching that's going on here. Something has come upon these men and transformed them, a holy power, and we call it Christianity. Christianity is not just a new philosophy. It is a new way of life, a power that makes them something that once they were not. It's not just a new way of thinking. It's a new way of being, a new way of existing. The truth that's being shared here this morning, it's not just a state of mind. It's a matter of the soul. It's not just intellectual in nature. It is spiritual in nature. 
And the folks who are bound up in this, the folks who don't have just their minds transformed, but all of their being through their soul, they are freed up so that the status quo might be challenged. And when they challenge that status quo, the powers and authorities in our world feel threatened, they feel off balance, they enter into a state of disequilibrium, and they don't like it. Think with me for just a moment. If you go back into the 1800s, why did it take decades for slavery, something that we would now say is awful and should not occur, why did it take decades to have it abolished in England? Why did it take someone like William Wilberforce literally giving his whole life tirelessly to end slavery? Why did it take so long? Because the status quo of security and greed fought against it. Why was the transformed life of Martin Luther King Jr., why was he shot for promoting civil rights? Because the status quos of racism and bigotry railed against him. Why, when Jesus repeatedly says to take care of the least and the lost and the hurting, why today the concepts have, like this have become a lightning rod of talking about things like immigration? Why is it such a lightning rod? Because it strikes at the... It strikes at the security of status quo and comfort that we feel in so many instances. Even one person, one person can turn things upside down and affect the status quo of something. That's why John Wesley, who was the originator of Methodism, he was transformed when his heart was strangely warmed. In fact, it was on May 24th, so just this past week, back in 1738, that his heart was set on fire. He went to a Bible study. He was listening to a teaching on the preface of Romans. And while he was there, he literally says he felt in those moments his heart strangely warmed. Upon that, he was literally almost, well, at least spiritually, set on fire. He began sharing the gospel in ways that had never been shared before. He was part of a church called the Anglican Church. John never set out to start a new denomination or a new church. He died an Anglican. Now, if you're an Anglican and somebody comes to you or anyone in the church and they're so on fire for God, they're willing to do anything to share the gospel, wouldn't you as a church say, this is awesome, go to it, we'll open whatever doors we can so that you can share the gospel? I would think that would be the case. And yet, here was the thanks that the Anglican Church gave John as he started new methods of sharing the gospel. At the beginning, he was barred from preaching. And the early Methodists were literally persecuted for trying to share the gospel in new ways. Why in the world, if you are the church, why is that your response to somebody who wants to share the gospel and the love so aggressively? The reason is because the status quo of control of the religious authorities was thrown off. And they didn't know what to do with it, so they tried to shut him up. Now, eventually, John Wesley became one of the most respected folks in all of England. But the reason for the early persecution is because it disrupted the control and the power of the status quo. One other example to give you, back in 1741, there was a man named Nathan Coles. Now, he was a Connecticut farmer. He heard George Whitfield out preaching, and in those moments, his heart was converted. Here's what Nathan Coles writes of his conversion. He says, my hearing George Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. And I saw by God's grace that my old foundations were torn up and I realized my righteousness could not save me. Peter basically says the same thing here this morning in Acts chapter 4 verse 11 when he says this, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. This is what it means to become a Christian to have our old foundations torn up so that Christ may become our cornerstone upon which our lives are built. Have our old foundations been torn up, church? Have we built our lives in Christ in every way so that we might have courage to face any opposition that comes our way? 
are we plugged into the Holy Spirit in this way that we might have courage like a Peter and a John and other early Christians? As ironic as it might sound, the powerful love of Jesus, which is the most glorious element found in the universe, it's the very thing that draws people to know Christ, and at the same time, it's the very reason that will bring persecution against Christ for those who call themselves Christians. But the beautiful thing for us is that we can be sure, church. We can be absolutely certain of our own security. We can know and be sure that God's love is greater than anything else ever found in this world. And the more we know it, the more we can be transformed of agents, the more we can be transformed of agents, the more we can have courage like Peter and John and be used by God to expand God's kingdom. I wonder as we gather this day or wherever we might be worshiping, I wonder what persecution we might feel. Now, I realize in this place, and praise God, thank God, literally, that when we walk out our doors this morning, we will not encounter ISIS threatening us and persecuting us. But we do live in a nation now where six to 10,000 churches a year are closing. So in light of this, in light of the faces of the powers in our world seeking to silence the gospel, how do we live into a Holy Spirit power in which God's love continues to be shared? Hear this good news as an answer this morning. God does not need any of us to be the smartest. God doesn't need any of us to be the most talented. All God needs are everyday, ordinary, even untrained people who have been with Jesus. It's all God needs people who have built their life on the cornerstone of Christ and go out into the world and the power of God's Holy Spirit. It reminds me with our own youth ministry of Fuse, the mission statement that they use is about being a bridge between the true source of power, which is God, and the, and the place where power is needed, which is in our world. I want to ask you this morning as we gather together, church, would you say that right now our life is defined by our busyness and our schedules and all of those circumstances, or by the power of God's Holy Spirit in us and through us. I pray that we will be a people who love and serve our neighbors, a people committed to building relationships, meeting people on their turf, even coming Wednesday nights to gather and be with our community and be with our neighbors. I pray that increasingly we'll be a people filled with courage, doing whatever it takes to meet people where they are to share the love and the truth of Jesus. I pray that we'll be a people of power, not just looking to get through a day or to hang on, but walking in power and confidence and delivering healing and grace and life to those who need it, a people sharing God's truth no matter what. I pray that we'll be a people filled more with concern for others rather than thinking what they might think about us. And I pray that we will be a people who see ourselves as local missionaries and not just theological consumers. Sometimes I think we forget the very heritage that we live in. In general, we live in the heritage of the rest of the story of the book of Acts, what we're hearing together here this morning, where the Holy Spirit comes in God's people and God uses God's people to advance God's kingdom in the power of that Holy Spirit. But more specifically, you and I, as we gather in this place, we live in the heritage of the United Methodist Church. Now, I was at a conference just a few weeks ago. It was not a United Methodist Church. It was a conference on Holy Spirit and on awakenings in our country now and throughout history. And two different speakers on separate occasions, independent of each other, said one of the last times in the history of the world that they really noticed an unleashing of the movement of God and God's Holy Spirit was when the Methodist Church began. 
because the Methodist church, fueled by the Holy Spirit, broke outside the bounds of normal church and shared the gospel in new ways. And it began to move through Great Britain. It began to move through Ireland. They did new things like forming in class groups where they could hold each other accountable and where they could study and grow in discipleship. But more importantly, as the movement was occurring, They even sent out unordained pastors to go and be with people on the fringes because they just couldn't keep up otherwise. And when they did that, it drove the established church nuts, but they didn't care. They went out beyond the established church to share God's love and God's message with whoever they could run into. And as they did that, God moved in powerful and significant ways. And as they did that, they became leaders in the social issues of the day. Everything from prison reform to the abolishment of slavery and everything in between. That is our heritage. So I ask us this morning, what would it look like again for us to reclaim our heritage? Not just as United Methodists, but even more importantly, as Christians. I want to ask you this day, would you begin to think about that? Would you begin to pray about that sincerely? so that we can discover together our part in the rest of God's story. We pray that God's Holy Spirit may come and fill us so that like Peter and John, we might grow and go out into God's world with love and power and grace, so that the church might be as God always intended it to be as described in Matthew 16, 18, so that even the very gates of hell cannot stand against God's church and that God might add daily to their number. May this be our Holy Spirit reality, church. And may the world, when it looks at us, recognize very simply but very powerfully, those are a people who have been with Jesus. May we believe that ourselves and like Peter and John, be filled with God's courage through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.